That idea of cross-pollinating, I've carried through my entire career. I typically go into something I know nothing about <laughs> and try to learn it fast. Yep. And when you do that, sometimes you get insights that those who are too close to it, you know, missed. That's Scott Jones, serial entrepreneur and inventor of voicemail. Not only did Jones invent voicemail technology as we know it today, but he also founded and invested in several other tech companies, including Gracenote, Cha Cha, and 1150 Academy. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and you're listening to episode 50 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups. And this episode is our first after a very long hiatus from the show. I mean, like a long hiatus from the show. And a lot has happened in the world of Powder Keg since season one. So this is sort of an in-between episode, meaning that it's not officially season two yet, but it's not really the same as what you may have heard in season one. This is a new show format that we're trying out, so I'd love your feedback before we lock it in for season two. We start the episode with an interview with serial entrepreneur, inventor, and investor, Scott Jones, who actually worked with myself at my last high-growth venture on a product called Social Reactor. We start the episode with an interview with serial entrepreneur, inventor, and investor, Scott Jones, who I was lucky enough to work with on my last high-growth venture on a product called Social Reactor. Scott is a longtime mentor and friend with incredible pedigree. At age 25, he co-founded Boston Technology, where he invented a massively scalable and easy-to-use voicemail system that has been used by over 2.5 billion people. People. That company was sold for $843 million in the mid-90s. Since then, as CEO, chairman, and or director of many, many companies, Scott has participated in raising more than $200 million of capital with collective returns of over $5 billion for investors. My interview with Scott goes into some of that history and some of his most valuable lessons learned along the way. Then we go into our second segment of the show with two entrepreneurs from the heartland. Today's pitch segment features two guests who are both from Cincinnati and will be featured in an upcoming conference we're hosting called Fuse 50 Cincinnati. And that'll be along with Scott Jones as well. He'll be joining us on stage. And this conference is part of a new series that we've launched at Powder Keg to help fuse together the most interesting tech hubs outside of Silicon Valley, creating new collaboration opportunities and more access to capital, talent, and customers. During the second segment of the show, you're going to hear pitches from two entrepreneurs building serious tech companies in Cincinnati. The first is Summer Crenshaw, founder and COO of Tiller, a talent platform that has a smart algorithm that matches workers to job offers based on skills, not just past titles. Our second entrepreneur is Rye Walker, founder and CEO of Astronomer, a data engineering platform that collects, processes, and unifies enterprise data so you can get straight to analytics, data science, and insights. After we hear the pitches from these two entrepreneurs who are actually in the trenches, you're going to get to hear how they react to live Q&A from Scott Jones. After the pitch segment of the show, we get into our final segment, which I like to call Office Hours, where our two expansion stage entrepreneurs are going to get to ask Scott Jones for advice directly, getting his perspective on his own entrepreneurial journey. And our guests today don't hold anything back. It's an action-packed episode, and I think you're going to like the new format. Let's get started. Hey, Matt Hunkler here, and I am really excited because I have three amazing guests here for you today on Powder Keg Igniting Startups. I'm super excited because we caught an old mentor, boss, friend, um, Scott Jones here today, uh, inventor of voicemail, 
as well as several other technologies, including GraceNote, ChaCha, now working with 1150 Academy and some e-commerce projects. Scott, yes. thanks so much for being here today. Thanks. And then we, we've got two people remote out of Cincinnati. Um, we have Rye Walker, who is the CEO of Astronomer, uh, which is an amazing uh, technology company based in Cincinnati, raised about six million bucks. Rye, thanks for being here today. Excited to be here. Absolutely. And then remote as well, we have Summer Crenshaw, who is the COO slash CMO and co-founder of Tiller, another awesome technology company based out of Cincinnati. Summer, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, we are we have you audio only, but we will uh, we'll make sure you get you in person or virtual for the next one. Um, really, really excited to have you guys here. The, the way we're going to do this show um, is, is going to be pretty fun. 10, 15 minutes. I want to talk to you, Scott, about your background, your journey, um, you know, yeah. going from Indiana University to MIT, inventing voicemail, you know, yep. the, not voicemail like company name, but like the voicemail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then of course, going on to do several other ventures, investing in a bunch of investments. And then I want to give both Summer and Rye the opportunity to pitch Scott, not necessarily for funding, but for feedback, a little bit of um, uh, questioning around their product. Um, and then we can dive into sort of uh, after that, the final 10, 15 minutes, we want to give them the chance to turn the tables and ask you questions. Yep. Sound good? Sounds good. All right, let's do it. Let's start at the beginning, Scott. I know you've got a long journey, so we're going to have to brush over, do some yeah. broad brushstrokes here. Okay, well. But take me back to those uh, those dorm days at MIT when you when you're in the lab and and maybe not always sleeping at home. Yeah, actually, a lot of my entrepreneurial chops were developed at IU. I should have only spent two years at IU in my undergrad program. My dad will tell you that I spent six, and he helped fund <laughs> a lot of that. Uh, and and I still didn't get my degree. Uh, then I hopped on uh, uh, a train, a bus, uh, to get out to MIT to follow a professor friend of mine, Doug Hofstadter, who I had house sat for him for a couple of years in Bloomington. He was the Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, Gudel Escherbach. Wow. He was going to do a sabbatical under Marvin Minsky, considered the father of artificial intelligence. And uh, I asked him to take me as his grad student. Unfortunately, I was not in grad school. I was just taking a couple of classes. And uh, so he wouldn't do that, you know, for good reason. But the person that he did take, I was good friends with. And I asked if I could come, you know, hang out at his place for a little bit and see the lab and enjoy all that. So I went and hung out and they basically hired me on the spot. And I was working for Marvin Minsky ostensibly, although in two years, he never really asked me to do anything. Uh, so there were other people in the lab who did ask me to do things. So I went not as a student, but as a research scientist in maybe the best possible role because I didn't have the obligation of classes. I got to play with robotics and expert systems and all things AI uh, over a crash course of two years. And then I started my voicemail company across the street with a partner that who I found at a study group between Harvard and MIT, the law school and the artificial intelligence lab, we were meeting to try and create an expert system to put lawyers out of business, which <laughs> I've seen some recent activities in that space. Oh, really? We quit early because we figured we would get you know sued out of business quickly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I met a partner and he and I hit it off, Greg Carr. Uh, the humanities school in Harvard, the building is named the Carr uh, building. Before you were working in that yeah. that uh, that building with him, what <clears throat> things did you learn in the lab that you kind of took across the street 
Yeah, to this interest, voicemail well, interestingly, at IU, I was working on a, a in vivo chemistry project. We were the first uh, published in Science Magazine to isolate a neurotransmitter, uh, uh, actually sending a signal uh, across a single neuron. Wow! Uh, and we could measure that in vivo in, in a living in living body. So in that, I was working on an Apple II computer and creating all the electrochemical stuff, you know, programming around that. Uh, but at night. I was digitizing voice, right? And so I learned a whole lot about how to store voice, you know, before anybody was doing that. Just a side hobby yep. there. Yep. <laughs> and then I went out to MIT and uh, one of the things I did during that two years with nobody telling me what to do is I went out and got grants from Apple, a whole bunch of Macs. I got uh, Hitachi gave me this massive multi-terabyte server, actually a petabyte uh, uh, robotic server that could store at, at a time when we were still talking megabytes, right? Yeah. <laughs> so this was massive storage. And, and so I, I spent, uh, you know, a lot of uh, my activities learning about storage and voice in particular, you know, putting voice onto disk drives, which was just not done back then because everything was slow and not very big. And so um, the way we did our voicemail systems, and we built uh, this company right across the street from the AI lab, and Google followed suit 10 years later doing the same thing. We built our own computers, put them in racks. We sold them off to the telephone companies. So they would put a refrigerator-sized box that we would charge a million bucks for. But we were using PC parts mm -hmm. in a world of telecom that really grew up completely in parallel with the whole PC industry. So we were moving this technology, this commoditized PC technology, into the telecom space at a time when really not many people were doing that. Was that something and, you did intuitively or uh, how did you get the inspiration to kind of cross pollinate those industries? Well, so because I spent so much time at IU and at MIT and just sort of dabbling in lots of things in my early 20s, I was able to put things together that most in the telecom industry or most in the PC industry couldn't, right? They didn't, they didn't cross pollinate. And so that idea of cross pollinating I've carried through my entire career so exposing myself to new areas, um, as you can see from my, my background, I typically go into something I know nothing about <laughs> and try to learn it fast. Yep. And when you do that, sometimes you get insights that those who are too close to it, you know, missed. How, uh, how do you go about learning something fast? Immersion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the academy that we started here, 1150, is all about immersion. It's less immersive now than it used to be, but it's still pretty darn immersive with 12 weeks. But we, we were doing iPhone apps in Swift in a week. And so there's and a was, software development academy <laughs> yeah, where you're just coding. Yeah. going hard. And, uh, going really hard. And it's still really hard. Um, but I have found, whether it's learning computer languages or real languages or anything really, you know, maybe it came from my cramming days, you know, during finals or whatever, <laughs> yep. but I was a crammer. Uh, I, yeah. And I found that that was a very effective way to learn because you get your arms completely around something. And so I do that with companies is just deep dive and then quickly find experts in areas where my gaps are too big. And I learn a lot from them. And hopefully they learn a lot from me too, about all those other things that they didn't spend their time on. And and so that's really been my model for all the various 
companies and music and robotics and training and now swimsuits and all sorts <laughs> of different things. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you mentioned the uh, music. I know that that was sort of the, the venture that caught your attention uh -huh. after, uh, after voicemail. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience in, in Grace Note and how that, that came about? Right. Well, you know, it was when I moved from Boston back to Indianapolis, I moved into a house that had wires hanging out of the wall and a little sticker that, that said, you know, who to call. Yeah. And uh, it said, what was here? You know, big screen TV or whatever. And uh, they came in and outfitted me with some things. And I got to be good friends with the owner, Tom Doherty. And for a while, I was just trying to coach him from afar and, and said, you know, there's some really interesting convergence things happening in the consumer electronics space. And he was telling me, really, there were really interesting things happening. And, and I was, you know, resonating with that and saying, you got to run with this. You know, the timing is perfect and you have all the right resources. And we talked about it for a year and not much happened. And finally, he was showing me somebody else's house and what a nice theater they had. And we ran out of gas, maybe conveniently and <laughs> or inconveniently for me, but conveniently for him. And I said, well, you haven't done anything. I'm... I'm sitting on my hands. I'm interested in doing something else. Let's go in this together. And he just had a wealth of knowledge about that industry. That was an example of me not knowing much. And he knew a lot. Finding the right person. Yeah. And then as I dove in with him, I could apply some technological skills to what he was trying to do, which was organize people's CD collections and DVD collections which he had gotten started doing pretty manually. For and you so, millennials that are on uh, right now, a CD and a DVD. Yeah, well, at least it wasn't cassette tape. It wasn't eight tracks. <laughs> so uh, we had some technological things that allowed us to do it pretty quickly. And then we discovered that somebody was doing it even better than we were. Uh, there was these three guys that had never really met. And on the web, uh, they decided to start an entity called CDDB. CD database. Mm -hmm. And um, it was basically the same thing that we were doing, except with the crowdsourcing model where there were servers all over the world. And when somebody uh, would put in a CD into their computer, it would upload the data if, if the data had never been collected before. And so this massive database was growing of all these um, physical objects. And so um, I was in contact with those guys. We They, they thought that I should acquire them for a hundred million dollars. And I said, well, you know, uh, maybe I'll just be your first customer and we'll use your technology in our business. So we started that way. And then after a while, they got an offer from a big company, a very big company. And yet they didn't want to give up control. And I said, well, I'll pay you something, maybe not that much, but you'll get to keep control and some equity. And um, so we worked something out and we acquired that technology and then they were smart guys in the space and they pointed me to other entities that we should look at. And so I did about 13 acquisitions um, wow. and, and consolidated it into five operating companies. Uh, you know, one of them was CDDB, which changed its name to Gracenote. Gracenote, Gracenote is now Nielsen Gracenote, mm -hmm. by the way. Yep. And uh, it's, it's still incredibly big with, you know, billions of data sources, not CDs these days, but just tracks. And, and, uh, and what is that powering, like in terms of the front end uh, uh, Well, software? for example, you know, Apple's uh, Genius, iTunes, you know, those components. I've heard of that, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and basically everything music has been using us over the last couple of decades. 
it's billions of, of data inputs coming not so much from physical objects now, but you know, automatic recognition of the music and you know, Shazam-like yep. capabilities, which we also had that. Um, and uh, uh, we also had things like music players. Uh, there was one that spun out called Mog, which got be- bought by Beats. Beats got bought by Apple. So a lot of the heritage of that stuff came from what we were doing. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yep. And, and, you know, both of these ventures very much like category creating ventures yep. where there was not a category there. Um, there was no precedent for it. And you're kind of yep. cr- cross pollinating industries. Right. And, you know, in robotics, sort of the same thing again, I did. I knew something about robotics because of the AI lab and the work I'd done with sure. things. But then we moved into lawn. Well, first race the DARPA Grand Challenge and we had the race against the Google car. They obviously have gone into the world of uh, autonomous driving. We took it into lawn mowing, so you know we're we're mowing the greens of Augusta and yeah. uh, those sorts of things. And now, into Precise Path Robotics was purchased by MTD, which is the number one lawn mowing companies who who also bought Friendly recently, which was is the number one autonomous lawn mowing in Europe, where the market is much bigger than in America so far yep uh but it's expanding it's so again there. it's a category you know yeah pe- a, people have a new category introduced to the idea of robots mowing their, their yes. lawn with mm-hmm. with fast moving blades right on their but, own but yeah. you know it's a little safe yes but <laughs> you know the things we have to look out for are squirrels not sure. pedestrians sure. so that was one reason we moved into that space instead of what we believed would become a very litigious and it is happening uh space sure i could go on and on about any one of these ventures mm-hmm. and you're working on some really cool things now mm-hmm. but we do have two uh, amazing entrepreneurs on the phone right now from cincinnati ohio and i, I do want to point out that uh, scott is part of this fuse 50 conference that we're hosting in uh, cincinnati and as well as our two guests ryan walker and summer crenshaw and that's going down on may 17th in cincinnati we have a full day of programming uh, we just took tickets live yesterday we already had 50 people register for it. We are really excited to have you on stage, Scott, and we're going to have uh, Rye and his company there exhibiting as well as Summer uh, and her company exhibiting. We might even uh, see if we can get them to join us for some panels as well, because as you're about to hear from them, they are uh, amazing entrepreneurs. They've both individually you know, raised millions of dollars for their companies uh, and what they're doing. Uh, so if you're interested in joining there, go to Fuse50.com. That's Fuse50.com. Um, right now, there's super early bird tickets, although even the highest price ticket is less than 100 bucks. So for a full day and three meals and uh, parties and pitches and, and great entrepreneurs like Scott, uh, you definitely want to check it out. And you're going to hear from uh, from Rye and Summer here in, in just a second. I, I was hoping, Summer, you might kick us off uh, and maybe tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Tiller. Uh, and then we might uh, ha- allow Scott to ask some questions because this is his first time talking to you guys. And then we can kinda sort of take it from there. Summer, do you mind uh, giving us a little bit of a high level of Tiller? Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me. And what we're doing at Tiller is uh, really the, the company was created to eliminate bias and to accelerate uh, the process by which we get individual workers to companies. So what we do is uh, we're a marketplace for jobs and we match individuals uh, who we call our Tiller community members to uh, employers in an on-demand capacity. And the way that we do that is by looking at individual skills to job requirements. So we've neutralized the data so that we can eliminate bias and get individuals to work in an almost uh, real-time capacity on-site at employers that need them now. 
That was great. Scott, I mean, I know you're involved in this space, obviously, through 1150 Academy. Yes. Um, but then also even just having so many ventures, right at hiring the, lots of talent. At the Academy, we put uh, students through a 12-week program uh, to learn various coding skills, mostly in .NET and JavaScript right now, but we've done you know iPhone, Swift, uh, Android, Java stuff, and uh, WordPress, and all, all the whole gamut. Um, and one of the most difficult problems then is uh, for for any coding bootcamp is placement, right? Yep. And that's how bootcamps are really measured is placement. And this this concept that you have summer is brilliant. Uh, that you're breaking it down to the granular level of skills and doing a skills match to employers. So I think it's a brilliant idea. I'm curious to know your revenue model. You know, how do you monetize? Absolutely. And thank you so much for the compliment. Um, we're really excited about what we're doing because we think it is, um, it's a massive challenge. We're seeing it across the board and, you know, we've seen it for decades now where technology has kind of missed the mark a bit on matching individuals with great skill sets to, to companies that they could do amazing work because we've been relegated to things like our resume or a job title that we've previously had or basic keyword algorithms. So we're trying to break through that. But our monetization model um, today is uh, we charge 25% above the hourly wage of our workers. Um, they use our platform as their time clock. Uh, we pay them weekly through the mobile app, and we're actually looking to accelerate that into daily pay as well. In addition to that, uh, when an employer and a, a worker find a great match with one another, um, there's a bit of a conversion fee to take them off the off of the device um, and for them to go and work permanently with, with the organization. Um, and in addition to that, we also do have a, a software as a service model that takes the same concept of what we've done with our marketplace and really apply it into um, large scale organizations. Because what we're finding is that most of our organizations have no clue the skill set of their employees. And so what do they do? They go back out into the public, beg, plead to try to hire uh, new talent without ever looking internally. So, you know, for us, if we can identify your skills, we can identify the gaps in your skills. And that's pretty easy to close, especially with things that you're doing, Scott. You know, we know that boot camps work. We know that training and development works. So why aren't we working to close the gap both internally and externally? So that's what we're trying to do is neutralize that playing field. By neutralizing it, we can eliminate a lot of the cognitive bias or the real true bias that goes in the recruitment process um, and get people to work uh, in the fastest way possible and make sure that there's great matches for our future. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and on the internal uh, side, is that a subscription model of some sort? Absolutely. So a subscription model, um, and depending on the organization, some, some organizations need a uh, an integration and or implementation that might be a bit more robust. So there's some fees associated with that, but it is a subscription model. I love the granularity of skills, um, but what do you do for assessment of those skills? When we first started the, the platform, which we, we launched our MVP back in uh, June of 2016, um, we started really on the low, lower skill side. So when we were validating, um, most of the questions that we were asking, we, we do an onboarding call with every single one of our, our uh, members. And knowing that that's not something that will be scalable, but we needed to understand how to build uh, questioning and how to validate and how to build that back into our mobile applications. We've done it actually you know, through human interaction. Being able to ask experiential questions in the same way that a recruiter would ask those first interview questions is how we started out. Um, now what we've done is we've added tools and we've done certifications into the mobile device. And, and now, um, depending on the client and the client's needs, uh, we'll still match algorithmically, still send people job offers. But the, the steps prior to taking the role, they, they can do internal assessments with the organization directly. Um, just what we found is more and more organizations have their own either homegrown or variation 
um, based on the type of, of skills that are actually needed at, at a certain location. So, you know, there might be some old school personality tests that some, you know, some clients want, and then some are like, no, wait a minute, I just need you to uh, come in and, and, you know, have one quick conversation or, or something that, that could kind of close that gap. Um, Future Roadmap, I think, will we'll definitely partner um, with a few organizations uh, that can do a bit more aggressive, you know, validation of, uh, let's say, high-level skills. And we definitely want to let, lean into partners rather than us kind of grow it ourselves because we feel that there are subject matter experts out there that can do a, a heck of a lot better job than us just kind of coming up with something that uh, can be that new standard. We want to be the standard for skill as a currency, um, but we understand that validation um, in certain roles is going to be important for the future. Right. Yeah, that, that's really been the struggle. Um, in you know, we're, we're right at, at the front lines of that. And so we can identify the skills, but what's even more important perhaps is, you know, what's the assessment of those skills, um, you know, at that level of granularity. I think if you solve that problem, you know, that's, that's an industry killer that, that in a good way, that is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Summer, before we uh, kick it over to Rye at Astronomer, could you maybe give us an idea of, of the scale? Like how big is the team? Uh, how many markets are you in? Uh, and then what's next for Tiller? Currently today, uh, Traction, um, we have uh, nearly 400 clients, um, over 30,000 community members uh, within a five-city uh, marketplace territory. Um, I have about 30 employees. We have two locations. One in Cincinnati. It's our, our operational headquarters, and our tech team's actually in Toronto. We are getting ready to actually launch into 12 new markets, so we'll be uh, jumping up to 17 markets um, by the end of May. Um, so we're accelerating growth uh, now that we've, we've, you know, kind of proved our concept, proved, you know, a product market fit and understand uh, a bit of, about where we need to go deeper. So that's really our kind of our acceleration point. And to date, we've raised about $7 million through uh, private uh, investors. Congratulations. That's that's really awesome. And I'm excited to have you guys at, uh, at Fuse 50 on May 17th. Rye, could you maybe give us an idea of what's going on with uh, Astronomer and help give us some context? I know it's a little bit more of a technical product. Maybe you could give us a, a couple minutes on, on what you're building there. Uh, sure. And I thought it was really interesting to hear Scott talking about cross-pollination because I come traditionally from a web developer background. Uh, I started in the 90s doing Perl and PHP, all these server-side technologies that were really hard to use. Eventually, they got easier. Then suddenly, we had client-side development, you know, React and Node or, uh, you know, JavaScript, all this stuff, which started out really hard and it got easy. And there's a new, there's sort of a new... It was new, but then we lost him. So we'll, we'll pull Rye back on here in a second. We lost our internet. Well, <laughs> at least we're still live. I've got a, I've got a question for you, Scott. Yep. In terms of uh, figuring out and cross-pollinating into new industries, is there a magic there of like seeing where the intersection is? Like, it, is it magic or is it trained? You really Can have you to train that, right? You gotta you, you gotta dive in. Uh, encourage friends, family, and my sons uh, to dive in, get your feet wet. Um, you'll explore and you'll figure out where barriers exist. And then if you're open to it in the other places that you might have knowledge about, a little bit of knowledge about, you can usually think, oh, gee, if I applied this other, you know, like in the case of voicemail, applying computer PC, commoditized PC technology into the telecommunication space that had seen none of that, mm -hmm. right? It, it became just an obvious fit. You know, similarly, there were uh, technologies that had been used separately 
to assess music, monitor music, and apply, and, and then the storage, you know, elements around that, the crowdsourcing elements around that, you know, applying that into the music industry, you know, you get magic, right? When, yep. you, when you bring those other capabilities into those spaces. So I'm always looking for something that's disruptive. So pull from another uh, adjacent space that is not commonly thought of as adjacent, maybe, mm-hmm. and, you know, pull it into a mainline space and see if you can create a lot of disruption quickly. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. And it's, it's cool to see you looking back on your history and seeing how you've done that kind of again and again and again. And I know you've invested in some entrepreneurs over the year that have been doing the same. Sure. What do you look for, you know, beyond that disruption potential, what are you looking for in an entrepreneur that you invest in? As most VCs would say, you're investing in people, right? Mm-hmm. No matter what it is, uh, you can throw those, uh, you know, the, the people who know how to go uh, build a business and capitalize on a space, uh, they can probably do that in any sector, yeah. right? And and so you look for, you know, people that, that have, that are wired like that, right? Yep. And, and that you can trust that they're going to, you know, do whatever it freaking takes, uh, <laughs> because there's always going to be roadblocks. Uh, if you're going to go take on a big Moby problem, yep. there's going to be roadblocks and you got to have that, whatever it takes attitude to just push through, you know, the grit and run and, through walls. Yep, that's right. Run through walls. Yep. Well, I, I know, I know from, uh, talking to Ryan, Ryan, on a number of occasions at astronomer, he's definitely run through some walls, uh, in his journey. And it sounds like maybe we picked him back up. Hey, there he is. Uh, we, we do have Rye back on the call. Rye, you were just getting into to what Astronomer does. I started with web development. There's this new field of data engineering that's emerging. This is where the software engineers are being brought into the big data space. Um, historically, a lot of like uh, ETL uh, data pipelines have been built by analysts with drag and drop tools, but it's becoming so important uh, that the software guys are, are arriving. But, but it's a very janky space right now. Um, very early stage. And uh, so what Astronomer is doing is we're really helping companies bring open source data engineering technologies into their company. This is important because they, you know, a lot of them are bringing, bringing a, a lot of um, data scientists in. Uh, machine learning obviously is on the rise and data science or um, machine learning really loves to have lots of different data feeds, you know, to work well. In particular, we're helping um, especially big e-commerce brands eliminate the uh, third-party integrations on their website, bring all that data in-house and then share the data on the back end, uh, which which gives them a much richer database to, to, to uh, run their business on. So we're, we've got about 50 recurring customers. Uh, we've been in business for three years and it's just a super hot space. I'd say our, one of our biggest challenges is there's almost too many opportunities to go after. Um, there's so much, it's, it's everywhere. And, um, you know, choosing a focus has been uh, a pretty tough thing to do, um, given given all the, the opportunity. I have a couple of questions, Rai. So I, I yeah. really was exactly in this space with Chacha. Uh, Chacha ultimately didn't make it, perhaps because, you know, it did take some, so many resources. That was at least part of the problem uh, to tackle the things you're talking about. So I love yeah. the space that you're playing in and the solutions that you're bringing. So do you have wire into, you know, Google analytics and, uh, like the Facebook ad platform, are are you directly wired? So you pull all that data together in a nice way and then can present it, you know, with Tableau or whatever. Yeah. So the the Holy grail we're calling super tag. And it's the idea that you can, 
that we can give the customer the ability to deploy one tag, all the data comes back to them. So it's not going to be caught by ad blockers that collects all the data for all the tools that they use and will ever use, which is, again, that's why I say holy grail, you know, hard to find, hard to get to. The closer we can get to that, uh, but yeah, it'll, it'll integrate on the back end with uh, all the Facebook and Google uh, ad technologies. And down. again, there's really, there's like 8,000 tools that it could integrate with. But, yeah, can uh, it go but, down to the placement? You know, a particular ad placement on a particular page is going to tag to that, you know, that granular level? Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's hard to know where it can work and where it can't work. But you know, the the thought experiment is, you know, what if third party cookies didn't exist? You know, could these businesses run without some of these uh, right. kind of w invasive technologies? Sort of like they're sort of hacky technologies too. You know, dropping somebody else's code onto your website is is a security risk. A lot of you know, a lot of our customers actually will take that JavaScript and rewrite it. You know, right off the bat. So. Um, there's a lot of costs going into trying to secure what is really a janky kind of setup. And so, yeah, it, we're going to go case by case, customer by customer, figuring out vendor by vendor and, and see what can be done to, to solve the problem. So you're in figure it out mode still in, in some ways. Uh, you have figured out a bunch, uh, but yeah. you're, you're still figuring out. Love that. Uh, that's where, you know, big value comes from. Uh, yeah. And in the trenches, so you're you're fighting all the hard problems Question, do you have any hooks into Instagram? Because if you do, I'm calling you right after this. <laughs> uh, I, I actually would have to check. I was literally talking to a customer the other day who's trying to pitch me on his product. And I said, does your product read from Intercom? Is that a data source? He goes, uh, yeah, you guys helped us build that. I was like, oh, okay. Like, you know, we have so, so many integrations that yeah. I, it was pretty embarrassing, uh, honestly. But uh, yeah, I, I, if, if there's an API... And like Instagram and some of these other uh, social platforms have locked down their API to, to specific, you know, kind of an inner circle of vendors. Um, that is the problem. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> if, if you can yeah. find out for me, if you have a solution, then we All should right. talk. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, we'll check into it. Yeah. I mean, we think over time, uh, the, the other great thing is we have some very big brands, Fortune 50 brands that want to solve this problem. And they've basically given us a, a, a gold stamped letter to negotiate with vendors with, you know, so they want this very badly. Um, slow web pages actually hurt your SEO performance too, you know, Absolutely. like page rank actually. Yeah. Uh, so we tried <laughs> so to make our pages yeah. as light as possible and we had to do some of what you're doing, but it was all, you know, custom and, you know, prone yeah. to breaking. So love that you're taking that on. It doesn't need to be custom and it shouldn't be custom. And quite honestly, you don't want engineers in your team to really understand the Facebook ads API uh, to the level <laughs> right. that you have to, to, to do this. So, so yeah. yeah, we really feel like there's a big, huge economy of scale and, and it's a, uh, it's, it's pretty early for us. Yes. But you know, we do have, you know, we're closing, closing in on a million recurring revenue and uh, pretty, pretty awesome opportunity. So, so you turn this into a single pixel and, and, and hide everybody else's pixels. Is it done asynchronously? Yeah. That's the, that's the idea. It's not necessarily a pixel, as much as it's going to be JavaScript, you know, JavaScript will pull in pixels and, and whatever. But yeah, uh, yeah the, the, the theory would be one cookie, one tag. And again, it's, it's almost an unreachable goal, but it's pursuing really that hard. Goal, yep. Yeah. Yeah. If, solving if hard get, problems has great high value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even if we can get halfway there, if we can eliminate That's half right. the tags on your website. Oh, it's huge. It's, it's, it's huge. Yeah. So. yeah. Ryan, do you have any questions for Scott in terms of uh, what he's uh, done in the past or even where you are now uh, and kind of what's next uh, in the next stage yeah, of growth for astronomy? I, 
I mean, literally, I have a very burning question <laughs> on our plate right now, which is the fact that there's this thing I just described to you, which we're calling super tag. And we also do Airflow. Airflow is a really fast growing open source. It's Apache Airflow, it's incubating. We're actually the first company to offer commercial services around Airflow. It's, it's actually a subcomponent of our, of our big clickstream thing. And we started doing it last year when we were not sure that the super tag idea was gonna make it. Um, it, it was a less refined version of it. So we, we sort of semi pivoted, we started doing something new and now we have like two, you know, like a rose with uh, two blooms on it. And you mentioned earlier that you did these acquisitions and you had five operating companies. I'm kind of curious, like at what point do you, my, my inclination right now is to split this company down the middle and, and put half on this and half on that. But at this stage, it also feels like we should be focused on one thing. Any advice? We could talk more in depth on this later, yeah. but I'm curious to get your quick reaction on that. Right. Well, the parent of GraceNet was Eshent, and I I did exactly that. I had kind of five things going at once. Uh, one was you know massive storage, a company called Powerfile. It got acquired by Hitachi. One was consumer electronics installation. One was consumer electronics equipment. That was, you know, DVD changers at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so millennials, you won't know. But, uh, uh, we had these various companies. GraceNote ended up being the one that, you know, took off in a gigantic way. And that's where all the value ended up being. So I, you know, I was placing multiple bets. And frankly, I might have spent, I and my investors and my team might have invested more time and money on the other ones and perhaps they should have been sold off or chopped off earlier in in the game so rather than use that story uh, i'm going to go back to voicemail and say that when we started we started on a single pc on my desk you know in my bedroom is where i developed uh, that and it wasn't the the patented you know hugely scalable thing uh, yet, but it was the beginning of voice. And I was replacing that answering machine on on desks and in the office and kitchen counters at home. So that's where I sort of proved out the technology. And it turned out we could take that piece of equipment, that PC, and put it into small businesses. And it was very effective for, you know, 100 employees or something like that. And then it was two years later when Judge Green, you know, came out with his ruling on the divestiture of AT&T into the baby bells and uh, seven baby bells and a long distance company. And that was the headline we were looking for in the newspaper. And we got it in uh, April of uh, 1988. That was everything we wanted to hear and more because he said, oh, and the belt, the baby bells can't do it themselves. They have to buy it from others. So, you know, we were well positioned for that. So for those two years, we developed the small PC based unit, but we always had in mind and we developed our software so that we could scale it up. Right. And so then we immediately had this kind of, it wasn't called this then, but enterprise uh, side of things. There was the small business and then there was central office based voicemail, which is, you know, like enterprise. And then there was a third thing. Does anybody know what a payphone is? <laughs> so, I've seen it in movies. Yeah. So, so we had this other thing where, you know, you were getting on a plane. Remember there's no there's no mobile phones, right? And and when we first started, it, they were beginning, and that turned out to be one of the biggest accelerators for our business a few years later because you need, right? You, there were no ways, there was no way to take a message. There was no answering machine. So you needed it built into the central office. But when we first started, that first couple of years of 1986, 
the bell companies were trying to monetize these payphones, and in airports, you know, people were always using the payphones uh, to make their calls, and you know, they're ready to get on their flight, and they they get a, a busy or ring no answer, and so we built technology into the payphone. So I had to do, you know, similar to blue boxing, like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak <laughs> did, had to reverse engineer payphones. That was a product that, you know, was high, became highly profitable. So what you would do is while you were making your call, we would detect the busy or ring no answer and say, hey, if you got to get on your flight, just leave a message and we'll deliver it while you're flying. Right. And so uh, we built all that. So we had these three entities, right, payphone messaging, uh, um, small business messaging, and then the central office messaging. And we funded all three of them for a while, about 12 to 18 months. And it turned out that all three of them were profitable. And we had to make, and so I kept, Greg and I kept them alive. We kept pushing and pushing to keep, make each of them a profitable, profitable division. But there came a day when we said, okay, it may be true that small business voicemail and payphone messaging is profitable, but we're using all these resources, diverting all these resources um, to those things when we could put them on a platform that's gonna deliver 20 to 100 times more revenue, more profit. I mean, just the baby bells so hungry for this new enhanced service was, you know, we just knew that was the opportunity, right? There came a day when we knew that's where we should put all the marbles. And we basically shot the other two in the head, right? <laughs> a profitable business. I think we sold them off. Well, let's see, we, I think we sold off CPE for not much, and we, yeah. which was the small business. And then the payphone messaging, we just shot it in the head. And because we saw it coming, right? Mobile phones are coming. There's not gonna be payphones, just quit. But we didn't know that at first, but we figured it out after you know 18 months and we put all on red, right? <laughs> so, uh, or double zero, whatever you want to call it. But uh, we went <laughs> after big central office voicemail, in particular internationally, in particular in mobile messaging, right? Uh, and mobile phones. And so that cellular and international market is what catapulted us. Our revenue looked like 2 million, then 20 million the next year, then 50 million the next year, and on. It just kept going. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I hope that sort of helps you think about, you know, how do you nurture these things until uh, you find, you either figure out that one of them doesn't work or you figure out, yeah, they both work, but one works a whole lot better than the other, right? Yeah. And then divert the resources there. But I, I do like in the early stages, and I've done it in pretty much all my businesses, the diversification and then knowing that you have to assess that, you know, say every quarter, not every day. Right. But every quarter, sort of step back and say, well, let's, let's pretend we just started today, forget about sunk costs, and be willing to shoot something in the head, even though you spent a lot of money. That's hard for people. That is really hard. That, that's a really good answer. And I want to make sure Summer has a chance to ask a question here okay. in yeah. the last two, three minutes Sorry, that we've I'm, got. I'm verbose. So, <laughs> please don't apologize. Those are awesome stories and definitely illustrates Hopefully that that was a that they give some context or at least uh, a one perspective, Rye. Um, yeah. you, you know, Summer, you're uh, expanding in all of these markets right now. I, I was wondering if right. if you had a quick question for Scott that he could maybe provide some context. Yeah, absolutely. And it actually, um, Rye actually had a very similar question to to what I was thinking too. So I oh, could, I get to ask another question because 
I think chasing, um, you know, being a squirrel that's chasing all the nuts, one of the bigger challenges as an entrepreneur. So you do have a lot of opportunity and we can go a lot of different ways. But uh, we, we recently made the decision to expand into a lot of markets and go super deep into like focus. And I, I think for me, you know, I'd love to get your expertise or your, your experience, you know, when you've had that, that pivot point, when you go from, you know, we've got this proof of concept, we've got clients, you know, people are excited into kind of that scale mode or that growth mode. You had mentioned early in, in the program, you know, around like, you know, locking yourself in a room for a month so you didn't go outside and, and what that looked like. Um, but any advice for entrepreneurs that are making that, that jump to the, that pivot, if you will, or that change in direction into scale? And, you know, what, what's your best advice to an entrepreneur that's getting ready to do that? Are you saying that you've got to a place where you have proved it out and you are certain that if you just do more of it, you're going to scale profits? Are you saying you're at that point? Correct. So okay. now it's, it's uh, exponentially so, expanding geographic locations since we're a marketplace. So we, you know, we're, we're geographically dependent from the marketplace perspective. So I um, yeah. would love to understand if you've had any experience or advice, uh, you know, when, when it comes down to knowing um, expansion across multiple territories and time zones and, you know, prepping your team for, you know, what's going to be uh, an exciting ride, so to speak, what keeps uh, the wheels kind of uh, going forward. Yeah. So if you've um, identified that and you've got uh, cash behind you, uh, which I'm, uh, it sounds like you've been very successful there and you're moving into other markets, you know, the real challenge there is putting the blinders on, on and, and staying away from, you know, collecting more nuts, you know, as the squirrel. If you know what it is, just be, you know, maniacal about putting boundaries around that for your company. And every day, maybe not every day, but every week at least uh, in front of the whole company, bringing everybody together and just re-cementing. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Because they're, you know, in a startup, you end up having a bunch of creative people and they're always coming up with new ideas. And so one of the things that I had to do in the voicemail company, my partner sat me down one day and said, stop bringing new ideas, Scott. We got one thing and it's going to work. Just concentrate on that and get all your engineers to do the same. And that was a really important discussion. And I've had to do that with all my companies ever since is once you figure out what it is, there is a struggle to keep your team just focused on that. So the best thing you can do is put analytics around it. So it's up on the wall and in front of people every week and saying, this is our target. This is where we're going. This is the markets we're expanding into. And you use that same data to get in front of investors. You, you, when you're in scale mode, it's hard to say you can ever have enough cash behind you, right? It's all about the dilution factor. But, <laughs> right. but it, you know, if you've hit it and you know it, you know, you can generate some big funding and you need it in order to scale. That is the moment when you need to go after big cash. And if you've already got what you think is big cash, think bigger. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Great well, thank advice. you. I, I think that's the way that we're thinking, but it's always good to get affirmation, I think, from somebody that's been there. <laughs> Thank you, Summer, Rye. Thank you so much for taking time to share your companies. And of course, Scott, uh, thanks for sharing your knowledge and, and wisdom over uh, literally decades of successes and, and failures entrepreneurial too. struggles. Yeah. <laughs> you um, learn the most from yeah. failure. <laughs> totally. Well, and uh, I know you're going to be bringing all that knowledge to yep. Fuse 50 on May 17th yep. in Cincinnati. Yep. Uh, our partnership with Centrifuge down there, which is sort of like the, the tech point of Cincinnati yep. down there. Um, they're, they've been an awesome partner of ours. Uh, we're going to be hosting it in the Over the Rhine neighborhood. Awesome. Um, which is sort of like their little uh, Silicon Valley right there in Cincinnati. Yeah, Love it. We're looking forward to yep. it. 
That's it for our show with Scott Jones, Summer Crenshaw, and Rye Walker. You can find all of them on Twitter, of course. Scott Jones is just at Cha-Cha Man on Twitter. Summer Crenshaw is at Summer Crenshaw on Twitter. And Rye is just at Rye Walker on Twitter. Make sure you give them a follow or come meet them for yourself at our upcoming Fuse 50 event in Cincinnati on May 17th. To get links to the resources and people mentioned in this episode, as well as more stories on entrepreneurs, leaders, and professionals outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com slash iTunes. You'll want to subscribe because we have some great guests coming up in season two, and I don't want you to miss it. While you're at it, let me know what you think of this new show format. We're going to be experimenting around with some different formats and guests before officially launching season two in June. So please keep the feedback coming. Thanks again for listening to this special in-between episode. You'll be hearing from us again soon on Powder Keg Igniting Startups. Startups.